Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So you said you had been listening to or talking to John DeGos? No, it was just a talk. It was a talk that he gave. Yeah, yeah. About Scala 3, but Uh he brought up a topic in there that kind of blew my mind. He, you know, I've definitely um, drank the Kool-Aid of static typing and think really that, you think <laughs> think that everything should be statically typed you know the more static typing the more compiler validation the better but he kind of offered a different perspective for me which was that there's a lot of times in static type systems we actually are building something that then doesn't actually get validated until we run it against the system. So some examples of this are uh, SQL is a great one. I really like writing my SQL code in a statically typed language. So instead of writing SQL, which is just you know full on dynamic, uh, and then and then passing that SQL query over to the system that then runs it. I really like to use these libraries that give me static types that that then compile into the SQL that then get run. Because if you're talking to a database, then SQL is the only language that the that it understands. Um, so I I have really enjoyed that experience, but I'm also that static programming bigot, and so of course I would like that experience. Um, so what John was saying was that that. I, I get some benefit of the static typing when I do that. I can have some amount of validation, but I actually get zero validation that the thing is actually going to work until I actually run it. Because I don't know if that SQL statement is actually valid, that the one that has been created by the static types, I don't know if it's actually valid until I actually run it against a database. And that's just one example of, of uh, many different places where we do this. And what, what John was saying is that he understands why people are so drawn to dynamically typed languages specifically for things that are mostly unable to be validated until runtime anyways. So this could be reading JSON, uh, you know, taking a JSON request and doing something with it. Like you don't know until you actually get that JSON if, if your code is valid and going to work. Um, SQL, uh, um, things like data science stuff with Spark, which again is, is just you really don't know if it's going to work until you run it. And so it was interesting to see it from that perspective of like, oh, I really think everything should be statically typed. But at the end of the day, I don't know if all the static typing that I'm doing is actually giving me much value. The analogy that I would use is like pure math versus applied math. Because yes, pure math, when you prove something, it's like, yes, this is a universal proof. But there's only so much you can do with that. And whereas applied math, you're going, okay, we're going to see if this works or not. And if it does, yay. Um, If it doesn't, we'll futz around with it. It's very kind of fungible, changeable. Um, I I was having, yesterday, I talked to Luciano Romalo, who's the author of Fluent Python, and he's working on a second edition now. And he made the comment, he said, statically typed languages prevent you from, uh, how did he put it, writing code that you know will work, um, but 
you know, to jump through the hoops in order to make it statically checked, it, it can just be really painful. And the experience that I've had with um, Java generics has been like that, where you, you know, you go, I know what I'm trying to do here, but to get the generic signatures right is often uh, actually reminds me of, um, of, um, Darn, what are the, the, the regular expressions? Oh, yeah. It's like I I can do a certain number of things with regular expressions, and I usually, if it gets bigger than that, I break it into multiple ones so that I can understand each one. But there are people who can, like, just go, oh, just do a back this or a, you know, back forward reference back and references and things like that. And it's just like, I don't know. It feels like it's beyond my uh, mental ability to do that. And it's the same with generics. Maybe this is what I mean. Oh, I see people do this with SQL too. People will just, you know, come out with some SQL statement that I'm like, whoa, like I can't understand that. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's great that somebody can do that, but everybody's got to understand it. And, and, and so Luciano was saying, you know, here's this piece of code. Now I know I can get it to work and I have tests for it, which are not, static checks there there are other kinds of tests but a compiler that you know is requiring me to fit everything into that box it won't let me do it mm -hmm. and so i wonder yeah where where is the proper place for that line if you're going to say because my my experience with java feels like it's just it's when they run it, when the language designers ran out of gas, they go, oh, well, we'll just make this dynamic. And, you know, you have to do a cast and you'll have to put in a ignore this warning on it. And and so it's I mean, it's possible to do it. it but, but the thing is, it, it's kind of discouraging, you know, yeah. to. It's like telling you, no, you, you're doing it wrong, but I'll let you. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it should be something like. No, we have this clear distinction where here's all the things that you can do statically, and we're going to do those awesomely. And then when you want to do something like this, here's a flag for you to set. And then if if you're having trouble with your code, maybe you should go look at those things first because yeah. that's you know a likely. I I don't know. I it, but it's a fascinating. I I also realized that for so many years I've been defending Python's dynamic. Uh, typing, and and I didn't really know why. It's just, hey, this works for me. But I think John DeGoe's, um his observation, which is that um, you know sometimes if you're if you're going to do stuff statically, you want it to all happen there, and you you don't want to be going back and forth between the two. Oh. I've got the static checking. Okay, and now I've got this dynamic stuff. With Python, it's like, well, it's you're going to find out about it at runtime, except for the optional static typing stuff now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, ActionScript three was interesting in this respect because it mm -hmm. allowed you to, at the class level, say if you wanted something to be dynamic. I think at the function level too, wasn't it? I think it's only on a class. Oh, was it on class? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. If you if you had a class that extends object, mm -hmm. then that became a dynamic class, mm -hmm. and and so you could you know do whatever you want to against that instances of that class. There was no static type checking on any calls mm -hmm. or or property references on that class. Right. But otherwise, 
you were statically typed. And it was really interesting because there were, you know, it did sometimes feel a little, you would feel a little bad if you went into the dynamic land, but if you're interacting with a system that you can't validate anyways, like you've made a, a HTTP request to some service and you've gotten a response back, like you can't actually validate that until you make that call anyways. So making those kinds of things dynamic didn't feel that bad and actually made you a lot more productive because you're like, I don't have to like model this thing with no guarantees of uh, until I run it that the way that I've modeled it is actually accurate to what the thing is. Um, so you just make it dynamic and, and you'd run it and, you know, verify and you do tests and, on it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like you would just go naturally this works. Right. It's just a different kind of testing. Yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, this idea, I think kind of crept into um, checked exceptions as well, because that's, you know, a kind of a static checking. And in the end, it's like, well, the point of exceptions is recovery. Took me a long time to realize that. And most things you can't recover from, you know, it's only if you're crossing boundaries, you're, 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 uh, you know, talking to an external system that might fail. And then if it does fail, maybe you can just try it again. That's almost the extent of most recovery. You know, yeah. it's like, how much, how much else can you fix? And everything else is basically programmer errors. And so having checked exceptions to, you know, imposed on you for that very small situation and using exceptions everywhere for that matter. Yeah. Uh, and it's taken so long for me to kind of get clear on it too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's, I think it's a fundamental mindset of whether we can control everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I want to control everything. Sure. <laughs> but anytime I talk to an external system that is that has a data model that I don't have, I can't control that, right? Like it it is a piece of my system that is out of my control in terms of what what's gonna happen. Yeah, even in functional programming, that's you know, we've been been able to like fit everything over here. It's like, okay here's the pure math stuff that I have control over. And then if I cross a boundary to the outside world, <laughs> to the outside world yeah. or, or even to, well, I guess a clock is the outside world, yeah. the passage of time. Yeah. Um, any of that stuff, it's like, well, I, I don't know what's going to happen with yeah. that. That's, that's where all the problems are. Yeah. So, yeah. What's, so in the example of when I'm working, when I'm writing like Scala code or Kotlin code against a service that I'm consuming data from, I think this is a good example. What I do is I, I, I have a basic idea of what the data model for that service is. And so I try to model that, that data into my static types. And the only way that I can actually validate if my, my model that I've created is accurate is to actually call that service and test okay, is the thing that I got back from that actually fit into my model or not? And so when I'm actually iterating on these types of things, the same thing is true for when I'm writing SQL statements, right? It's like I'm constantly actually iterating in my development cycle to try to verify that my model matches the external model. 
And so I'm already like running against the external system to do this validation. And in, but I'm, but I'm trying to get my statically typed model to, to conformance with that, with that external system. Mm. And the dynamic typing model just says, all right, you're already like running this thing to validate your model. Why don't you just run the thing and validate that your thing, that your code actually works? You know, the, the thing actually runs. That was my argument with Python was that we still have to do tests. Yeah. Um, these tests just happen to be there. Static tests happen to be, you know, at, you know, the Python actually does have a compile phase, but um, anyway, you know, it's like, they're all tests to validate whether your system is okay. And to say that you can only have static tests might be too limiting for a practical system. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you, if you're talking to an external system, you need to have integration tests that validate mm -hmm. that, that things are actually going to work. And because that external system could change too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother thing is, mm -hmm. is what, how do you handle potential change? But even just to validate that as things are right now, that they actually work, you should have integration tests. And I, I write a lot of integration tests. I, most of the code that I write, um, ends up needing an integration test because I'm actually talking to an external system and need to validate that in some way. I've been using uh, test containers, as I've talked about a bit on this podcast, mm -hmm. as a way to easily set up some external systems and validate them. So test containers take Docker containers and plug them into the testing cycle or your local development cycle. And so that if I need a Postgres database with a schema, I can at least like bootstrap that as part of my test and run my integration test against that and validate that it works as part of my test. Um, so it's, it just creates a nice way to do those external validations. But my compiler is not telling me that my, that my query is invalid or my schema mapping is invalid. Uh, it's not, it can't tell me that, right? The, there's no way for the static type system to actually tell me that. I wonder if this isn't like an extension of Goodell's incompleteness theorem, where it's like, Basically, there's only so, I mean, you, you can, you can have a complete model of your system, but there's always a boundary and an outside to that system. It can yeah. never encompass everything. Yeah. Or at least that's my, yeah. that's my take on the incompleteness huh. theorem. And yeah. it's like, oh, you know, this feels kind of like that. Yeah. I, I had a, it just popped into my head. Um, I had an insight about concurrency, which was that all any concurrent system that's actually going to run faster than a regular system has to be has to have parallelism involved because hmm. if you think about it, even hmm. you know because we have an async system which is like for example in python you're you're running you know a single task to run everything mm -hmm. and it only makes sense if you're you know, calling out to an external system, which has its own processor. Yeah. But if it's, if it's all packaged inside, then you're going to have, I mean, unless you're using multiple processors within your machine, if you've got a single processor and you're running an async thing, it's going to cost more because of context switching. Right. Yep. That yeah. was just a side thought. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, 
relates to something I used to talk about a long time ago with reactive. Mm -hmm. When I first started talking about reactive stuff. I said, if you, if you don't have anything to not block on, then reactive has really almost no value for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you need to be able to do things in parallel, essentially to relate it to what you just said. And, and if you can't do things in parallel, then <laughs> there's not mm -hmm. no value there. So. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't have those other processors running. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, but reactive is really a, another form of concurrency, right? Yeah, it's okay. a way to, to take mm -hmm. advantage of concurrency for okay. mostly IO, IO um, things. So right. you, a lot of times in IO, you're waiting. Sure. And might if, as well do something else while that well exactly. other processors Wait, while coming up with its for, data. Yeah. yeah, for something mm -hmm. IO wise to, mm -hmm. to respond. Right. And uh, if it's an internal system, then... Uh, it doesn't make sense unless you have multiple cores in your CPU that can be running these other tasks. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. So the, the dynamic static thing, it's, you know, I think John's framing really helped me understand a lot of the, the pushback against trying to do everything statically. Um, and I, I get it. And I just wonder if we haven't really found a, a good kind of middle ground to this yet. So with with um, with proto buffs, I think I think we're starting to see the ability to do this a little bit differently in a way that that may actually um, be a step forward into into making it so you can actually validate external systems at, at compile time. So with proto with proto buffs because yeah. now you're are you making a distinction between proto buffs and gRPC because I yeah because uh, I think of yeah. proto buffs as a mechanism to implement gRPC yeah so let's talk first about proto buffs so okay. so with proto buffs there's the IDL what's that stand for again you introduced interface me description language so it's like a it's it's like a generic programming language that gets compiled into specific programming languages. Yeah. So you're able to say, and it's really, it's just interface. It's basically just interfaces. Yeah. And, and then when you compile it into say C or Python or whatever, there's ideal compilers for basically everything. Yeah. It generates the actual code that you need to, Yes. for the Python to send and receive yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. And so the, so the IDL for gRPC and protobufs is the, the protobuf description. Mm -hmm. And then there's the proto C compiler that takes that, that description and then can generate many different languages, uh, wrappers around that description. Mm -hmm. And so, so then gRPC is the communication protocol that then uses protobufs underneath the covers to to actually communicate. Mm -hmm. But with with gRPC, you have a server that says, I talk this protocol, mm -hmm. and you have a client that mm -hmm. then talks that protocol. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this agreed upon contract that where you've generated both the server code and the client code from a, from a shared IDL. Right. And so now you, you have an external system that you're talking to, right. but you can actually validate at compile time with static types that your communication is, 
is correct. That your communication, uh, you can actually validate at compile time that, that it's going to work. That the uh, communication is and is work. that because the IDL is generated? Because the shared IDL. Okay. Because you've shared a contract, the IDL in this case, between the two. Right. And so if I'm doing it in Kotlin, now the Kotlin compiler is going to make sure that that generated... Yeah, you, can't, you can't access a property that right. doesn't exist. Right. And so... So I think that there's something interesting about bringing together this dynamic static. Maybe it's not about bringing together dynamic and static. Maybe it's about giving you the benefits of dynamic mm -hmm. um, by sharing an IDL mm -hmm. um, in a way that, that you get the actual static, the value of static typing against that. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I haven't really seen much of yet is taking this beyond beyond just using this shared IDL for, um, for uh, serialization and deserialization. And essentially that's, that's all that it's doing. Uh, that's all. So like when you on in gRPC, I guess it's not just, eh, is it just serialization? It's it's operations and serialization. So with right. gRPC, it adds the concept of you, you also define your operations, mm -hmm. Because I'm making a RPC, well. a remote procedural right. call. Exactly. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And so I guess you're you're not just getting serialization. You're getting the the you're you're also able to to get the operations on that IDL mm -hmm. uh, verified static with static types. So, but what I haven't seen yet is taking this beyond operations and data to something like queries. Mm. So queries are, you know, you can create a SQL query that does anything and you don't know if that's valid until you actually run it against the, the current set of data. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I wonder if we can, if we can take this to some other, the, the shared IDL construct to other areas that would allow us to have more static, static validation for things beyond just operations and data. Yeah, but it doesn't test behavior, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, see, maybe that's maybe that's our problem is expecting static type checking to validate behavior, hmm. which it can't do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Whereas if it's dynamic, I mean, if I think, see, because so an example of this would be, um, let's say that let's say that I call a gRPC endpoint mm -hmm. with with some data. I can validate that that my my data structure was correct. I can validate that I'm calling the operation correctly. But what I can't validate is that that I can expect a certain result to to come out of that operation call. So for example, I've um, with some services, there there can be weird behaviors like I call this endpoint, I give it some data, I create an object, and then if I immediately after I create that thing, try to like make a, another call um, to, I don't know, do something else with that object, the system will be like, I don't know about that object because of like eventual consistency or whatever it may be. There's some sort of state thing. Exactly. Happening. Yeah. So I, I've just like hit like a, some kind of race condition. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's absolutely something that is totally valid from the data and operation perspective, but from the behavior perspective, I've not been able to validate with my type system. 
Yeah, the design by contract stuff is like an attempt to make that more reliable by saying, okay, validate preconditions, do the thing, check post conditions. But mm. it's still, you know, it within that function, okay, that helps. But yeah, we're, I think we're just trying to, maybe we're trying to do something that we're, we're looking at the problem wrong. We, we need to look at it as maybe the, applied math versus pure math saying, okay, yeah, here are things we can validate and we mm -hmm. should do that. But then there's this line we cross and then we're into this world of, um, we don't know if that model works, you know, <laughs> and, ugh. but, but maybe just acknowledging it, you know, because, yeah. because then it's like, okay, we only want to take our static type checking so far. Right. And then we want to actually add a bunch, you know, rather than saying we have to be able to statically type check everything and then that will fix all of our problems. Yeah. Finding that line where we're going, you know, it's be the, it, now it's beyond, it's making life a lot harder. And what we should really do is add a bunch of stuff in the dynamic area to, um, to help us yeah. be able to validate our systems. Yeah. Yeah. So John didn't go into... And as much detail as I would have liked on how Scala three is addressing some of this to to make it uh, easier, better, whatever. I think what um, I think there's a few pieces that are that are making it a little bit better in Scala three, but I think I think generally the the core problem still exists. Um, so I think uh, GADTs are are one of the ways that that makes it at least easier to should probably spell that out yeah, just in um, case uh general gen, is it general algebraic data types gen, generalized okay. I, I may be getting that wrong um i i don't know much about GADTs, but it's it's a way to do type class derivation mm. so you and i have been diving into type classes uh, lately and um what what we as we've been working with type classes, we are writing the type classes that that do a conversion from a from a type A to a type B, uh, and we have to manually implement that. And so, what what GADTs enable uh, type class derivation to do is to for the compiler to create the type class for you. Mm. So now you get the adapter from your type. So I think it's not really addressing the underlying problem of of I have to make I want to make this thing static and I don't know if it's actually going to work until I actually run it against the production system. I don't think it's actually dealing with that problem. What it's saying is we're just going to make it a lot easier for you to to do the static typing stuff. And you're going to be able to generate these things and you're still going to have to validate them against your system or things could actually go wrong. You know, if, when you run this thing against a real system, like they're not solving that problem, but they are making it easier to deal with the static typing, um, maybe overhead complexity that you as the developer would normally have to write to interact with those external systems. I like easier when applied to language features. Yeah, make it easier for you. That's that's music to my yeah. my ears. Yeah. So so an example of this is that in 
Scala 2, if you want to generate SQL statements from your static code, or you want to generate JSON deserializers from, from your static code, the way that this is typically done in Scala 2 is that you have to uh, either, as a developer, write those mappers manually, mm -hmm. uh, or you use a macro to generate those those wrappers for you. And mm -hmm. so with Scala 3, we'll be able to, to have the compiler generate those wrappers, but not via a macro, which can be a little black boxy, scary, uh, magical. And so now with G80Ts, the, the, those generators um, become much more well-formed and part mm. of the, the like core machinery of, of the language. But just to be clear, Scala 3 still does have some kind of macros. They're just easier to understand or something. Is that they've, I'm, uh, we'll have to ask Josh Surratt for more details on mm -hmm. this because he's a real expert on this front. But um, my understanding is that they, they, for backwards compatibility, they still have the basic macro system, which is, taking strings essentially and and injecting them into the compile process and that's what macros are essentially doing um for the most part and so so they still have that mm -hmm. but they've created some higher level abstractions that accomplish a lot of the same things that macro macros are doing but they've done it in a way that is not so freeform scary They've done it in a way where the compiler understands what's happening. The compiler is um, giving you the, the right uh, places to hook in to the compiled process. And it's actually using Scala syntax, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is much nicer than saying, oh, we're doing macros. Now we're switching to a different that's, language. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's there, there has been a way to use Scala syntax to write Scala macros, mm -hmm. but it was a bit of a hacky workaround. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So GADTs are one of the new ways that accomplishes the same thing as macros, but do it in a much safer way. Mm. And in a, um, so one of the, the key things that Scala 3 has really been founded on is trying to have a provably correct type system. And it turns out when you have macros, you, you lose the ability to prove, to prove that your static types are, are correct. Um, and so so macros were off the table for being being able to be part of like mm -hmm. that dot calculus ver verifier of the static typing, um, but they needed some way to accomplish the same things, and so uh, so they've created a, a number of higher level abstractions that give you the type soundness uh, hmm. with without having to drop down to macros. So another one is uh, we talked a little bit about. Uh, you and I this week, which was the match types, which are another way to do compile time metaprogramming, um, but do it in a in a type sound way. Hmm. So. Yeah, so I think um, I I think maybe there's a couple different avenues of exploration that are happening here. You know, like I think you've, we've got this whole spectrum of what we can do. You can just be like, well, I can't verify it. And so dynamic typing is is great and works for me. Or you can be like the like me and be like, all right, 
I don't care if I can't verify it at compile time. I'm still going to use static typing. And I would much rather write a flat map to do a join on a data set than you do an actual SQL join. Because I can never remember if I should do an inner join, an outer join, a whatever join. Uh, and and so when I write SQL, essentially, I, I do a flat map. <laughs> you know, it's, and to me, that just feels so much better. Um, but, you know, I'm a... I'm a scholar programmer, not a SQL <laughs> person. And so, so there, so there's that side of the spectrum. And then I think, think there's the like shared IDL gRPC, which says, all right, you know, maybe we can, maybe we can have the static types by sharing a definition across our systems. So I think that's one approach. And then I think on, uh, on the Scala three side says, all right, you know, we're still not going to validate, be able to validate that this thing works until you actually run it. But maybe we can just make dealing with the static typing around this stuff easier uh, with with GEDTs and some of the other Scala 3 features. So. I think I've, I've finally kind of come to the conclusion that my issue with static typing, and I'm sure a lot of it had to do with um, Java, was that you would go through all of this ceremony and a lot of it because of the java syntax was way more painful yeah. than it had to be yeah. so and then you know when you when you go to kotlin you go oh this isn't so bad uh, it's straightforward it's understandable i can read it and everything but but in java there was all this kind of sturmundrang around it and then you'd still have stuff failing at runtime yeah. Yeah. and it's like okay if i'm going to you know, have stuff fail at runtime. Why did I, why did I have to put, you know, go through all this struggle yeah. uh, to, to satisfy the compiler? And I think when I work with languages where, first of all, the syntax is a lot cleaner, like, like Kotlin. And um, then I can see it as, oh, it's doing as much as possible for me, but it isn't putting me through all of that pain to make yeah. it fit its... Yeah. And I mean, sure, there's still going to be failures at runtime, but it's helping. Yeah. It's helping. It's not arbitrarily forcing me to jump through a bunch of loops. I don't have to repeat my, ah, uh, that was one of the things that I've come up, you know, I just realized with, uh, with Java, it's like, oh yeah. Um, with the new ver syntax. So it's, you know, can do uh, type inference once again. Well, it works most of the time. Except a few cases where it doesn't. It was, yeah. it's, we were discussing this earlier. It's the pain of um, all of those special cases that you either have to remember or you just stumble across and go, wait a minute, why doesn't this work in this case? Yeah. It's not, it doesn't have that consistency that makes it easy to move forward yeah. when you're programming. It's, it's like, yeah, um, Sure, uh, lambdas are. I'd much rather have lambdas in Java than not. But then there are these special cases where they don't work, yeah. or they don't work the way I would expect them to. And then I have to go. Did I did I misunderstand this? Or oh no, it's a special case, and I have to deal with that special case. It's like at some point, and this is why I was calling it the Java the the death of a thousand cuts. Yeah, it's like all of these little things build up. And at some point you go, yeah, it's nice to have these new features, but they all have their little special case costs 
that I have to deal with. And I should either not use the new features at all, just be Java programmer, old style Java programmer. And then if I, but if I start just adopting these new features one at a time and deal with all of their little special cases and the code that I write is going to look to people like, why did you do that? Oh, well, I had to, but it doesn't, it's not obvious when you're reading the code. It's like, you know, at some point you should just say, oh, if we're going to start having new features, like important new features, we should just switch to Kotlin. Yeah. 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 I think when I go and go back and write Java, I feel those little cuts and, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just one cut isn't so bad. It's like, okay, I guess I'll deal with primitives. Like I don't, I don't want to deal with primitives. And I'm so glad that in, you know, most modern languages, I don't have to deal with that. So it just is like one little cut, but then, then, you know, another one comes like, Oh, lack of type inference. Oh man, that's like just a pain. Really? I got to specify these types. And then, yeah, it just accumulates and accumulates to the point mm-hmm. where now I have a hard time writing Java. And I think, I think it, it just is painful. And I think that, that now I'm very sensitive to all those little, little cuts that, that I get when I'm writing Java. Yeah, it is. Although my experience was that, okay, it took me about, I don't know, a couple of weeks after going from the Kotlin book back to updating the on Java eight book. Um, it took a couple of weeks before I kind of settled into it and kind of remember, okay, this is the world I'm in and I'm not constantly going, why is it, you know, why didn't they do it right? Um, And then, you know, and then it's okay, but I'm still aware that I had that transition. And I'm also much more aware. I've had this with learning new languages. I'm, I'm aware that the working on Kotlin has influenced the way that I think about Java. And I I think I write better Java code. You know, it's like there are things where I'm going, oh, well, yeah, I should traditionally, you know, I'm re- rewriting this code. And I had some sort of private variable, which doesn't really need to change, and then had a method to expose the variable. And I go, well, why not just make it final? Right. And then just have some, you know, and it's like, that's not the J- Java way. Yeah. Well, yeah, and maybe you, maybe we experience more cuts as we try to like shoehorn a paradigm into the language that it wasn't really meant for. So where I experience a lot of these little cuts when I go back to Java is around immutability. And I'm, you know, totally <laughs> try to make everything as immutable as possible, as we've talked about many times. Uh, but when I try to do that in Java, oh, it hurts. Like like the the fact that there's no that it's not an expression oriented language makes it really hard to do immutable things. So I ended up in some of my Java code because if else isn't a, isn't an expression in Java, I ended up using the, um, the, what's a ternary 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 syntax, which just looks terrible and gets really unwieldy and, and, you know, it definitely feels like, okay, I'm pushing against what the language was designed for and I'm getting cut as a result of that. And if I would just throw my hands up and be like, okay, I'm not going to try to write Java code like I write Kotlin or Scala code, then I probably wouldn't get cut so much. I guess so, but there's still, I mean, you know, the benefits, like 
like in this case, I'm, I'm looking at things. I'm going, oh, well, this is really a messenger slash data transfer object. I, I wasn't thinking about that when I was writing it, but now I look at it, it is. So I should make the fields final, initialize them, you know, in the constructor. And then it just, you know, and you see the benefits of doing that. Yeah. And, yeah. but but then somebody might come along and read it and go, why aren't you using the standard Java idioms for this thing? You yeah, know, we, yeah. we, the bean, yeah. Ugh, yeah. Okay. we're not going to have properties because that's dumb. I don't know why, you know, maybe they'll add them in Java. What would it be? Java 23 or something. The next long-term release, they like, finally go, yeah. Oh yeah. We see from Kotlin that properties are actually a pretty useful thing to have. Yeah. So we'll put them in. And, and then of course those will have the, the little compromises that they have to put in that you have to remember. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I think my recommendation is stick with the Java that you have now until you're forced to move to the next long-term release. Don't change your code as much as you can. But if you want to do anything beyond that, change languages, man, go, yeah. go sw switch to Kotlin. Yeah. I think to your point, once you've, once you've received enough of those little cuts, mm -hmm. it's a, uh, it's good motivation to move forward to a different, more modern language, but how do you have all the baggage? Cause, cause I think like you're saying, like, even if you do start adopting the brand new features of Java, which there's some nice things there, you still, you still have a lot of sharp objects to get cut on because they've had to add these language features in at the cost of something. And, and so, you know, even if you're trying to adopt the new Java stuff, it may just be easier to switch to. Oh, I think it is. I mean, the, the question is, how is that? Um, how do you convey that to the people who make that decision? You know, it's like, oh, we have all these little annoyances. Yeah, programmers are always complaining about things. Yeah. Just suck it up and deal. You yeah. know, just we, we don't want to change from Java. It would it would cost too much. And you're trying no, it actually would cost more not to. That's yeah. uh, going to be hard. I mean, maybe maybe some kind of studies or something would would do the trick. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. um, it's a, I think a good example of this is the, the Java stream API stuff mm -hmm. because I want the functional stuff on all my collections. Mm -hmm. And in the world of Java, it's great that they added that, but it's painful to use because you have to transform your, you, most of your code is dealing with non stream collections mm -hmm. and something you have to transform into a stream and then once you've transformed into the stream and do your operations then you have to transform back into the like base collection oftentimes you have to do that like collect mm. and then collections to list or whatever it is and and it's just like there's you know it's nice that the stream api exists but there's a lot of cuts that you don't feel when you're doing the functional transformations on collections in Kotlin or scala right it's another one of those things where it would have been nice. Well, generics is the greatest example because when it's been added to an existing language, there's always that compromise that gets made. Yeah. Yeah. With all of this, I have already found myself thinking, oh, I'm I'm gonna, you know, rewrite jo on Java 8 for Java 17 or whatever. I'm gonna try and make it as, you know, non 
I'd like that to be the last Java book that I write, but I'm actually intrigued yeah. just to see, oh, you know, how is this going to look different now that we have records and uh, whatever their pattern matching is going to look like. And you know, there's going to be compromises there. It's not yeah. going to be like, yeah. I mean, you know, because the, the switch statement, they added strings. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I know people yeah. use strings a lot, but it's like, um, it's not really a generic. So anyway, I am, and the vares and all that kind of stuff. And I am, I'm going, yeah, I would like that to be the end point and, you know, rewrite it somehow yeah. and do it right, quote unquote, right. Yeah. Um, I, I can't see myself not doing that just because I'm intrigued now, but. Yeah. Uh, if, if you roll forward the clock, let's say five years from now. Mm-hmm. What percentage of the Java community do you think will have adopted the new Java language features or switched to a new language or just stuck with, you know, the syntax that we have today? You know, mm, yeah, I feel like the people who are interested in new features are going to see that they're going to see the awkwardness of trying to adopt the Java way of doing it versus switching to Kotlin. They might not have the power to get their company to switch. Yeah. And so, uh, I don't know, that's going to be a mess because there are going to be a lot of people who, who aren't interested in, you know, I'm a Java programmer, I'm program Java this way. These new features, they take time to understand and acquire it's a different way of thinking about yeah. the problem and there's you know all these special, i just don't want to do it and then there are the people who go i can't i i have to and uh and those people maybe they'll end up just changing jobs yeah to yeah. to to you know somebody's running kotlin or scala yeah. um and then there's also there's percentages and then there's numbers because it's like you know even if what do you say million java developers stick with the the, that's still 2 million Java the, developers. Yeah. And maybe that's only, it's you know, all, yeah. 20% of the Java developers or whatever out but there, the rest of them move on, but that's still, yeah. you know, that's yeah. still a lot of people. And I guess if you're Brian Getz and, and the folks at Oracle, you're maybe you, maybe you know that you're not going to keep a hundred percent of the people on Java, but you're still potentially talking about millions of developers that are going to move forward with you. And mm -hmm. that's a, uh, I'm sure good motivation to keep innovating and, and keep doing great things in the language. Oh, speaking of cuts, you told me a story about your, your Perl guide. <laughs> tell me the, tell me, tell the story about your Perl guide. Yeah. So we were talking about um, quirk, quirks in languages, yes. um, which is very related to this concept of these little mm -hmm. cuts. Uh, and, and I was telling you about how in Perl, uh, how long ago was this? Uh, this was, uh, 98. Okay. So what is that? Over 20 years ago. Oh man. <laughs> it is. You're uh, old, man. Yeah. I could, you have gray hair. That's right. Uh, so, so I was, Pearl has, has so many quirks and I just can't keep all of them in my head. And so I was building e-commerce systems in Pearl. Because mm -hmm. that's what you did back in 98. I tried doing it in C, so yeah. I got stuck. Uh, so there's so many quirks in Perl mm -hmm. that I could not keep in my head. 
I had the O'Reilly Pearl Quick Reference book, which was a tiny little, I don't know, three by five uh, in, in very thin book that was just, you know, the very minimal, mm-hmm. but it was enough where it would give you the, the quirks that you needed to be able to look up quickly. And, and so as I was programming in, in Pearl and, and encountering these quirks often, I needed that quick reference book so handy that I would literally put the book in my teeth and hold on to it with my teeth so that I could type and then quickly, you know, very quickly pull pull up the quick reference book out of my teeth and look look something up and then put it back in my teeth and keep typing. So it just was it just was, you know, that close at hand. I needed it so often. So now my maybe this has driven a lot of my goals in programming is to gravitate towards things that don't have so many quirks and don't require a quick reference book, uh, that, that, uh, at hand. So you don't have, yeah, the, it's the special cases. Like what you'd really like is this kind of consistent flow. And I mean, that's what I always loved about Python is like, it just seemed really straightforward to me. And then it wasn't going, Oh no, this is, it's going to be, you know, different or special or whatever. I get, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I guess I've I've gravitated away from the things that require me to hold a quick reference book in my teeth. Um. <laughs> you mean? Well, I mean, as far as I know, you've never done that since Pearl. So uh, I I haven't done that since Pearl, but now with Stack Overflow, I I yeah. very often use mm-hmm. Stack Overflow almost in the same way as holding that book in my teeth. As do we all. Um, but there are languages and technologies that I am much more Stack Overflow centric to mm-hmm. than than others. Sure. So Bash, oh god, I've, I guess I haven't gravitated totally away from things that are very quirky because I've written a lot of Bash lately. Oh, really? Um, and Bash is one of those things where I am I am on Stack Overflow like every thirty seconds. I have, I you know, Bash. I've written Bash shell scripts, but it's never made sense to me as a, you, it would be so nice because it's just right there. You don't have to get people to load There's anything no, yeah. or any, you know, it's, the uh, universalness of it yeah. is, is nice. And so what I end up doing is if I'm going to do anything more than just a few lines of bash, I go, okay, I'm going to use Python because it allows me to do everything I need to do. And I don't have to learn this weird yeah. arcane syntax, which yeah. I just, I've never internalized that. Um, well, I was surprised that we we were able to do this topic for the entire yeah. time. But one of the things I'd like to put out there is if people have topics, I mean, there's no guarantee that we'll, you know, cover them, but if they have topics that they'd like us to cover or people they think we should interview yeah please put that on the um discord. the discord channel and then we can you know have more possible things to yeah to look at yes so yeah and we do need to get some guests on we need to yeah. send some emails after my discussion with uh roman from jet brains yesterday mm. we, can, we got to get him on oh yeah he's He's yeah he he might uh, be beyond our um, our brain capacity yeah. to keep up with, but uh, yeah, but we can always ask him questions. We got to get somebody from Unison on. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that would be interesting. 
yeah, some of these topics that we're fascinated right. with. We yeah. can use the podcast as an excuse to <laughs> right. talk to interesting people. Well, that's what we do on every episode is we talk to interesting people. Yes. <laughs> I find you interesting. Yeah, Bruce. I find you interesting too. We, we, we should expand our echo chamber though. Yes, we should. Okay. All right. Well, it was, once again, it was fun. <laughs>